This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back this week to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you and hopefully You'll hear a voice here that is one that you just don't hear elsewhere, uh, a voice of reason, a voice of patriotism, a belief in the fact that we Muslims have a problem, a cancer within the ideology of our faith that is political Islam, Islamism. And hopefully you'll leave here every week with a little bit of a sense of hope and a sense of solutions. And that I try to bridge that chasm between political Islam and the West, the land of modernity, the land of freedom and liberty, in an effort to, through that bridge, defeat Islamism, defeat the ideas that haven't been reformed and need to be brought into the 21st century. So this week, we have to start with Syria. We've talked about Syria here before many times, and I think what is unique to what happened, sadly, this is not the first time that chemical weapons have been used, but it is the first time that it's happened on the clock of President Trump that this evolved and that we saw this was not released of government footage. This is corroborated evidence that reports helicopter gunships that dropped ordinances that released gas that released a gas that caused the swelling, skin irritation, and visual changes and other physiologic manifestations that are well known to be the byproduct of chemical warfare. It's believed that it was sarin gas that was used. The first time that we know that this happened was in 2013 in Ghouta, in which 1,500-some died. Most of the evidence shows that it was released at that time and confirmed through soil samples and others by the UN, despite denials by the Assad regime. And again, the Assad regime now is trying to blame it on radicals, though the, the areas that were bombed were free Syria army areas with families that are 
supportive of the rebellion and not supportive of the Assad regime. There were no high-value government targets that were targeted. And yet the propagandists from the Russians and Iranians and Assadists say that this is could be a false flag operation. They're trying to say most of the evidence quickly, which allowed the leaders in the West, including a, a very strong statement from Theresa May of Britain and others in Europe who, who made it quite clear that this was a war crime and that it needed to be stopped. I have to give Ambassador Haley credit, Ambassador to the UN. She said, The illegitimate Syrian government, led by a man with no conscience, has committed untold atrocities against his people for more than six years. If Russia has the influence in Syria that it claims to have, we need to see them use it. We need to see them put an end to these horrific acts. How many more children have to die before Russia cares? That's a good statement. Now, obviously, you can tell, for those of us who are profoundly anti-Russian, you can tell that they're tiptoeing a line there. And if you look at the last week, there's been an evolution. Secretary Tillerson's initial response was to call upon Russia and Iran to intervene to make this stop, which made no sense. Russia and Iran are not only intervening, Iran has somewhere upwards of 40,000, 50,000 troops between their soldiers and Hezbollah soldiers that are operating on the side of Assad and the Assadists and the Ba'athists of his regime. So that initial comment then finally gave way to a recognition that an atrocity had been committed, a recognition that Assad is an evil, barbaric man. Those were adjectives that Tillerson did actually use, which was barbaric. He didn't use evil, but it was refreshing to see them awaken, probably with the pressure of other countries in the West. And I have to tell you, obviously, we would not be where we are today in Syria if it wasn't for the feckless weakness, the uh, weakness of the Obama administration, an administration that had described the red line that was then crossed, an administration that then claimed that victory would be removing all the chemical weapons from Syria, that somehow that was supposed to make up for the fact that they had used it, we believe, somewhere between 20 and 30 times. And no, there was a significant amount of chemical material removed, but it left a lot there, and as we saw used this week, still to be weaponized. And why would Assad use it? There's no nothing tactical to be gained by torturing women and children through the use of gas. But remember how we got here. In the campaign season, Aleppo was being savaged. And many of the candidates refused to even address it. And then while they were bombing the smithereens, suffocating, starving Aleppo, a town of four million people, cutting off their water, doing unspeakable crimes against humanity. They said, we once were done here, as they finished and the war settled down, the hot part of the conflict in Aleppo settled as 50 to 100,000 alone had been displaced from Aleppo, with another 100,000 probably dead from Aleppo. 
they said next we're coming for Idlib and they were ignored. So now they went to Idlib, which is thought to be one of the strongholds of the Free Syria Army and the rebellion. The, uh, the Assad regime would claim that it's full of terrorists and full of Jabhat al-Nusra and al-Qaeda. There may be some proof of that. There may not be. But the methods of conflict that they're using seem to be, why would they use chemical warfare? It's not just to put fear. It is also to signal to the world that they can do it and they will do it. This was not coincidentally five days after Secretary Tillerson said the fate of Assad is up to the Syrian people alone. The fate of Assad is up to the Syrian people. So that is the Iranian regime. That is the Russian talking points. That's what Assad says. Keep America out. Keep the, the, the Western Israel out of what we're doing. This is a, a rebellion of terrorists that we are dealing with and the rebels say, we want a revolution. And Assad in his ridiculous interviews with Western media says, we are dealing with this, it is nowhere for the West to interfere. Well, okay, if this is a civil war, then Secretary Tillerson and President Trump should be reminding and demanding that Russia leave, that Iran leave, that the tens of thousands of Hezbollah troops leave, that the open borders that allowed the Sunni jihadists to come in, which allowed Assad to claim that military ruthlessness was necessary, that those should be closed, those borders. But no, the jihadists, the Sunni jihadists were fueled as a foil to legitimize the suppression of a revolution that started off peacefully with no ISIS in 2011-2012. And as the Assad regime responded ruthlessly, then the people had to take up arms against the regime that was trying to destroy them and wipe them off the planet. And sure enough, ethnic cleansing, genocidal cleansing began through carpet bombing, through displacement internally, through millions of passports being handed out so that they would go into Europe and leave Syria. And the conflict continues. It's no surprise they went to Idlib, but it is number one no surprise this week that this act of state-sponsored terror of the use of chemical weapons was done only a few days after Tillerson and even Haley at the time, Ambassador Haley, said we are not any longer seeking the removal of the Assad regime. Green light. Assad then uses chemical weapons to say, since you guys said that, I'm going to test you. This is what I'll do. Trump's being tested. The Korean nutcase is also testing him. North Korean. And he's been using stronger rhetoric against the North Korean dictator and against China. Why can't he use the same rhetoric against Russia and against Iran when it comes to Syria? He uses strong rhetoric against Iran when it comes to the nuclear deal. But make no mistake, the $150 billion that Iran got from the horrific nuclear deal that President Obama gave him, gave them, is now being used to bolster the Syrian regime and use 
their power with Russia to hegemonize the Shia crescent into Lebanon. So they're testing it. Many of you may say, well, this is easy to say, sitting back on our weekend podcast here. What's the solution? Should we topple Assad immediately? Well, I did think no-fly zones certainly are still appropriate, but the immediate destruction of the power structure of Syria today would create the same problem we had in northern Iraq with ISIS just walking in. So what do we do? What is the strategy now? And the strategy, remember, has to make sense with a president like President Trump and what he laid out as the things that he would find acceptable in his policy. So that also makes it tough. This is not somebody who campaigned on the role of America in the world and advancing freedom, liberty, and democracy. This is not somebody who campaigned on soft power. We talked last week in the podcast here about the diminution of American soft power and the reliance of the Trump administration purely on hard power. When we come back, let's look at solutions. What can we do moving forward as Ambassador Haley, Secretary Tillerson, and President Trump begin to realize that to be on the right side of history, they cannot be on Assad and Iran's side. And yes, they cannot be on Russia's side. What are the solutions? I'll lay that out for you when we come back on the other side of this segment. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Udi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This week we're trying to dissect what are the way forward in the horrific, the horrors that are being seen in Syria. Often the, the more horrible, the more barbaric the scenes are, the less power we have, the more it seems that we have nothing we can do. And it almost seems like you're watching a movie that you sit back and do nothing about until the movie's done. And then you go to bed and wake up the next morning and everything seems to be okay. But this is not a movie. This is a reality of what's happening to the families in Syria. And as Senator Marco Rubio posted this week, he said, imagine if you're that father. The father shows a child that had been attacked and suffering, dying slowly, a suffocation from chemical weapons, from a chemical attack and sarin gas. 
and you hold that child even though you know that you may also be poisoned as you hold that child who has just been gassed by Bashar al-Assad's regime. You will never accept that regime as your rightful leader. And you are full of hatred and you're full of vengeance for what they have done to you and your family. Put yourself in that position, Senator Rubio said. We also can't ignore the countries that made this possible. This would never have been possible had Assad not had cover from Russia, from Russia's Putin or Iran. There needs to be a level of outrage. This needs to become a priority. Otherwise, we've lost our compass as a people and as a nation. I could not agree more with a good senator from Florida. What is our compass? What do we do? We can be outraged. We can voice disgust. We can cover the story, which is more than Russian television is doing, which is more than press TV in Iran is doing. We cannot deflect to propaganda released by militant, autocratic, evil regimes. But what is the way forward? Not everything's solved by sending in tens of thousands of troops. And I get the response from many on social media, oh, we tried that in Iraq, we need to send in a half a million troops into Syria and it won't solve anything. You're right. I used to believe that a more robust military response in 2012 and 13 would help, and I think it would have back then. But we had a president and a bicameral Congress that refused to authorize any type of action and a president that really didn't want to do it. He preferred to be on the golf course and do nothing. President Obama. Now we're on President Trump's clock. He tried to blame Obama for this. And yes, we're here where we are because of Obama's fecklessness. But now this is his administration's actions. And he already has dispatched Secretary Mattis, who's beginning to already inflict losses on ISIS in Iraq. That's beginning to contain them better than they have in a long time. But killing ISIS, destroying ISIS, does not a Syria policy make. You get rid of ISIS tomorrow and Jibhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, and other governments will rise, other governments, other radical groups will rise up to also become another problem. Just as we've seen al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula rise and others begin to fill vacuums. Until you start to treat the cancer of political Islam and the revolutions which we're trying to 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 defeat these dictatorships organically, not artificially as we tried to do in Iraq before the Arab awakening, but post-Arab awakening organically. But it needs American ideas, Muslim reformers, Muslim that believe in secular national identity and not an identity of jihad, an identity of an Islamic state or Arabism, pan-Arabism or pan-Islamism. So what should be the solutions? I'll give you a four-point solution to Syria. No longer toppling Assad right away. Not that I wouldn't just be gleeful out of the destruction and, and devastation of military of the Syrian military regime, but that will not happen in the near future. The four stage needs to be number one. America used its influence to demand 
that Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah immediately withdraw all assets from Syria. The only debatable point will be left its base in Tartus, and that's going to be difficult, but I think at this point we begin, as we put pressure on China, we put pressure about North Korea, we put pressure on Russia about Syria. And number one, the withdrawal of military influence so that it truly can become in the hands of Syrians. And then you contain Syria to Syria. You, number two, then do the same thing for the Sunni side. You demand that the Saudis, the Qataris, and the Turks withdraw their influence upon the rebels and allow them endogenously to work without foreign radicalization by these Islamist regimes. And then third, you also provide humanitarian support and air cover, no-fly zones, so that there can be safe areas so that the, ref- the civil society can begin to rebuild itself and to fuel itself in a real revolution of organization of various groups that share our values through intel operations, through on-the-ground facilitation with groups that we trust, start small, whether it's in southwest Syria or wherever the areas are of the groups of the factions of the Free Syria Army that are non-Islamist, that we begin to build those. So let's review. Number one, demand publicly and globally daily the withdrawal of Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah from Syria. Number two, the concomitant withdrawal of influence of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey the Islamization of the radical and the radicalization of the Islamist groups. Number three, the, the provision of protective safe areas through fly no-fly zones and the beginning of a humanitarian infrastructure that's protected in Syria. And then number four, a long-term 5 to 10 to 15-year strategy to begin to facilitate the development of like-minded secular groups across Syria, but beginning small in areas that are not regime-controlled with an eye to regime change, with an eye to the defeat of Assad so that his entire regime, especially the military leaders, can stand trial for war crimes, as we saw in Serbia and elsewhere. And perhaps in that plan would include a UN protection force and others for, remember, the end of the Serbian regime was seen through, yes, many air, air sorties and others from European coalition, but it didn't need that many troops on the ground. It was just unperformed, the UN protection forces that ultimately facilitated that transition. So, yeah, I've been disappointed at the Trump administration's failure to formulate a strong response in Syria. They need to engage those of us that do have solutions, that have families, that have unsight, that came as political refugees. It's not just a problem of vetting those coming here. ISIS is not the only problem in Syria. ISIS is a byproduct of a much deeper cancer and problem across Syria. The truth is that the Assad regime is a proxy tyranny of Iran and Russia now. The Syrian people have tried at great cost to tell us what they wish Assad's fate to be, contrary to the comments 
of many in the West who say, oh, it's up to the Syrian people. Well, tell that to those dying and suffocating from chlorine or sarin gas this week. If the Trump administration is choosing to allow this genocide to continue without a strategy to counter, they are simply extending Obama's horrifically weak foreign policy in the region and his shameful inaction in Syria. We need to develop a coalition of countries to put pressure on Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, and Assad. Standing by and allowing a dictator to murder, gas, and maim hundreds of thousands is not making America great. It's withdrawing our hard power and our soft power, strength in the face of crimes against humanity. We need soft power. Soft power is who we are. Nobody's saying that we need to deploy more troops. Nobody's saying that we need to uh, be involved in nation building as that became a pejorative. But in areas where America's influence is not felt, it is filled with evil. It is filled with barbarism. So it's not just in, in our own interests of national security that we should do so, but in the interest of the belief that every citizen in the planet wants to be free. Do we really think that there is any solution to the nuclear deal in Iran other than helping the Green Revolution and ultimately seeing them change? In North Korea, shouldn't we be working? I hope we're working in that prison of a country at somehow toppling that regime, if at all possible. In any of these areas, if we step away from the propaganda war, that propaganda war will not go away from us. It will continue offensively as we saw through the cyber attacks of the Russians, the Syrian Electronic Army, and so many other propagandists, Russian, the Iranian regime's propaganda actions in the West. All of those will continue to attack us on a daily basis. So we have to go on the offense for liberty, the offense for freedom, and to begin to articulate radio-free liberty into the Middle East and to begin to create that network that support our values and not to call allies those who really reject freedom and liberty in the name of supposedly a common enemy. I strongly urge administration to engage with those of us who know this issue best and to come up with a strategic, strong, moral, and ethical American response, which can both help end the suffering of the Syrian people and reassert American strength and leadership on the global stage against Islamists, dictators, and tyrants all at once. That we need a strategic approach, not that will get done in four years or even eight, but one about the 21st century. This is Zudi Jaster on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Matt Walsh. And homeschooling might be increasingly popular, but the vast majority of people that we meet out in life have been public schooled. And so are you really telling me that the vast majority of people we meet are socially well-adjusted, that are socialized, as, as we're told? Because that, that's how it should be, right? Matt Walsh. Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio.
Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's great to be with you. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you'll subscribe and follow us week to week. Uh, Every week I try to find those uh, issues that nobody else will cover, those issues that uh, you can start to understand where are the divides that we need to breach, what are the issues that we need to address as a society, and Muslims especially need to address in order to reform. We talked last segment about Syria. Uh, My heart, my prayers are deepest felt condolences to all those lives lost in the attacks this week. May we move forward. May the world community wake up from its anesthesia to prevent the inhumanity, the wars against the crimes, the war crimes against humanity that are being done by the Assad regime and also by ISIS and by Iran and by Russia. This segment, what I wanted to do is shift a little bit. We focus on reform, Islamic reform here. And there was a refreshing voice, a refreshing narrative coming from an Imam Tawhidi in Australia. Australia has had its significant share of Islamist groups, especially Hizb al-Tahrir. Hizb al-Tahrir is the Liberation Party by translation. Uh, it is actually a, a party of radicalism. It is not yet considered to be technically a terror group since it doesn't advocate violence. But Hizb al-Tahrir has a global footprint from England to Indonesia to Australia in which it is a caliphate group. It believes in the recurrence of the caliphate and will try to establish Islamic states wherever possible. There's a group called Sharia for Australia that uh, has obviously some overlap in beliefs and, and may actually be Hizb Tahrir, I believe. But the issue is there's been an imam who's gotten a lot of attention recently because the Islamists, the radicals in Australia, have called him a fake imam. His name is Imam Sheikh Tawhidi. And he was on Sky News. He actually had a video that he said he's Australian first. He calls for the end of jihad and uh, basically calls upon uh, the need to reform Islam against these movements. And sounds very much like what much of you and I have been talking about for some time. But I think understanding this gentleman, which I'm still trying to do, and the jury's still out, but I do believe that his story, as quick as it is to be something that people are refreshed to hear, he talks about the problems. But without a concomitant avenue for solutions without understanding the lens through which he would teach his children to build society what are we left with and i spoke to a reporter who was quickly had seen that this this guy was a victim and many in the anti-jihadist movements whatever those protean uh, manifestations may be started to post his video even memory translated uh, and and put it up as as a reformer who's being attacked 
he was on Sky News in Australia, and he said, quote, Islam needs to reform itself or it won't survive, according to Imam Sheikh Muhammad Tawhidi from the South Australian Islamic Association. He condemned the comments secretly recorded at Hezbo Tahrir meeting in Sydney that supported the killing of apostates. Speaking with Andrew Bolt of Sky News, he said that the sacred texts outside of the Quran need to be ditched. It has to reform, otherwise it won't survive. Muslims won't survive and nobody will survive if it doesn't reform itself, he said. By reformation, he meant getting rid of the books such as the sacred text. Ditch it, ban it. It should be illegal to have those books. That's not a moderate statement. The Australian Federal Police have been called in to investigate the Hizbut Tahrir in, in Sydney, Australia. He claimed that the Quran does not condone killing people. The Holy Quran itself doesn't say kill, he said. When asked if he thought the message of the group was incorrect, the imam agreed the comments were wrong. He slammed the comments by the Islamic Friendship Association leader, which condone a man beating his wife, and on. And you look at his Twitter feed for this imam, and he has a nice set of principles there that say that his principles are about establishing global peace, condemning terrorism, gender equality, tolerance, love, ending violent radicalism, strengthening our society, building bridges. He will not compromise his beliefs. So some of that sounds great. But then you look and this gentleman has a list of terror groups, which he recognizes that Australia lists as terror groups. And he says these are evil groups and has it listed on his homepage. But you look deeper. And okay, I'm with him. I'm with him on the condemnation of the terror groups. I'm with him on being Australian first and standing up for the Australian Constitution, as I say about being American first. I'm with him on the fact that radicalization often comes from the non-Quranic, extra-Quranic texts like Hadith and Tafsir and Sirah of the Prophet that have been corrupted and from which most of the scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Kathir and others take their quite extreme interpretations and have become a lot of normative Islam as a result. But to say that those texts should be made illegal is not a way to drive reform. And more importantly, what is he for? Does he believe in the secular state? Does he believe in freedom, liberty, words that I don't see? in his work at all. And you must understand, this imam is a minority imam. He is a Shia imam. So, again, we have many in our coalition that we work with that are Shia reformers. But Shia reformers are openly against, just as I am a Sunni reformer, I'm openly against all Islamic states, especially the movements that are Sunni, like like the Muslim Brotherhood like Hamas, like the Wahhabis, like the Salafis, who believe that when Muslims are a majority, there should be an Islamic state. So when this gentleman takes on and names only Sunni movements, I'm with him that those are the problems. But if that's all he's going to name, is he exploiting 
the radicalization and the obvious extremism in the West that we see, that we bear out by noticing the theocracy of Islamism, is he exploiting that for simply hiding behind Australian identity in order to avoid criticism of the Shia Islamists? I don't see him identify Hezbollah as a terror group. Nothing in his Twitter feed, despite being active this last week on multiple international media, defending himself from being called a fake imam, which he is not. We don't have any credentialing for imams. If he wants to call himself an imam, so be it. And he got a lot of coverage because he was called a fake imam because he took on his Tahrir, he took on ISIS and the Sharia for Australia community. So yes, he has courage. But if you're a Shia taking on Sunnis and they happen to be radical, it's no different than a Sunni taking on Hezbollah, but yet possibly being pro-ISIS or pro-Muslim Brotherhood. So this individual claims to be anti-terrorism, but yet there's nothing in his Twitter feed that identifies Hezbollah, the Khomeinist, the Iranian regime, as the problem. He, in fact, reports having traveled to Iraq and talked to many of the direct lineage of the Imam Ali and also having gone to many areas obviously controlled by Shia in Iraq and I possibly even Iran. So I'm still skeptical. And I think the story should be important to you because this stuff can get quite muddied, it can get quite confusing. And when we look at those who have our same enemies, we also, and this is the most important point, we also have to make sure that they share our same values. And he shares the values. He's mentioned Australia. He's mentioned tolerance. But does he stand against Islamism in general? Sharia states. It's interesting. If you look, there was just a recent controversy about the courageous Ayan Hirsi Ali canceling her trip last minute to Australia. And he stated in a tweet, I strongly condemn the threats made to Ayan that prevented her arrival in Australia. We are a society that respects women regardless. So he didn't offer her moral agency for her beliefs about Islam, which I may disagree with some of them. They've certainly, I believe, moderated since some of her comments back in 2007 or so. Now she does make a distinction about the need for reformers. She does talk about the difference between political Islam or da'wah as far as evangelical spread of the Islamist movements versus non-Islamist Muslims. So these distinctions that she's making within the House of Islam are important. And she's an important conversant in this global discourse. No, she's not Muslim. She left Islam. But her trajectory as a victim of female genital mutilation is extremely important for our communities to learn from. 
and yet this so-called moderate. And I say so-called because, you know, listen, when some of these folks say the same things we do and come across as moderate, and I say we, those of us who are believers in defeating Islamism that believe in the primacy of the national identity of, of, the, of a secular constitution and republic, when he says we are a society that respects women regardless, he seems to object and objectify Ayan as a woman rather than as a free thinker about Islam. So the issue here is not only the fact that he's trying to take the side of the Australians. He cannot articulate a defense of Ayan that looks at the work that she did and what she brings to the conversation about the need for reform, regardless of whether we agree on the mechanism or what needs to be reformed. His tweet then about the chemical attack was, Radical Muslims are the first to condemn a blast in Syria, but are absolutely silent when a terrorist attack happens in the West. It may be true for radical Muslims, but that's his tweet about the chemical attack in Syria? That's it? So, listen. This individual from what i can tell is a shia trying to find a sense of home and moderation and has no compunction to bravely attack sunnis which is which they deserve because of their lack of acknowledgement of the evil of the islamist movements like hizbutahrir and others but the future of islam is not going to come from those who balkanize, who ghettoize our communities. When we come back, I want to talk about this ghettoization of consciousness. What does it mean to be ghettoized? Is it simply a physical ghettoization, or is there a consciousness that separates Muslims out of society? This is Zudi Jasser, and I'll be right back on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. Thanks for being here, and hopefully you'll subscribe and stick around week to week, as I think you'll find here a voice of ideas that as you start to digest them week to week, I think you'll start to figure out how we can move forward and leave a legacy of security here domestically and a legacy of movement forward forward. 
into the next decade, into the next generation, across the world, towards democracy, towards peace, and towards, from my perspective, Muslim reform. That's the only solution. You know, we ended last segment, I was talking to you about ghettoization. What do I mean by that? I mentioned to you the imam who had a common enemy, was trying to portray himself in Australia as as being moderate, saying some of the right things, but the picture just didn't fit right. Again, I think you should start hold us Muslims accountable to consistency, to a fact that we approach problems with a common lens. So political Islam is a problem, whether you're Sunni or Shia. Democracy, freedom, and liberty is the solution, whether you're Sunni, Shia, Ahmadiyya, or any sect. Theocracy is the problem. Misogyny is a problem. And you know, we don't even only talk about the equality of men and women. We also abandon some of the misogynistic terms and tribalisms that existed. And I gave you an example of how this imam in Australia still used some of that when referring to leading individuals like Ayan Hirsi Ali, who he referred to as a woman rather than as a human being. And again, in the tribal sense, this is often a mechanism for patronizing in which you'll hear Arab men talk about our women or in a way they talk about honor and other things. And it's the root cause of honor violence, honor abuse, is the patronization and third and fourth class status of women. There are many examples of this, but we had a podcast, I think, a couple of weeks ago in which we talked about the problem of tribalism, the problem of critical thinking, the lack of critical thinking. We've also heard in the West this conversation about whether individuals are living in Paris or elsewhere in no-go zones. And then there was a controversy that somehow they don't exist or they do. And there have been areas that are demonstrably ghettoized. But to me, as somebody focused on reform, set aside the physical reality of whether they're surrounded by only Arabs or surrounded only by Moroccan or, or Syrian or, or whatever that may be. What about the consciousness of where they are inside their mind, of the culture that they live in, the politics, the society, the religion, the way of life that they live? Is their mindset one of being American, French, Australian? Or is the mindset still a foreigner living in a foreign land who feels their identity is mirrored off of those with a common heritage. Now listen, I'm not trying to negate those who want to maintain their identity. Actually, I don't have significant respect for people who abandon their heritage. Because as an American, we, we grow learning that what makes us a beautiful country is the diverse native the the diverse nature of the heritage of all those who make America a diverse country. 
with folks from every every corner of the planet. But it is important that we remain we not remain ghettoized in our consciousness. So what does that mean? I have to tell you that when you focus, when you look at the most difficult obstacles to overcome in having conversations with youth, having conversations with families in mosque communities, in Islamic organizations, in Arabic communities that often not only socialize together weekend to weekend, but you have many individuals that have immigrated here that Monday through Friday work in the American diverse marketplace and job job. Uh, arena, be it in healthcare, legal industry, engineering, architecture, retail, whatever it may be, and then they go home in the evenings or on the weekends and they are ghettoized in their social network. But the key is that they're ghettoized in their consciousness. What do I mean by that? What I'm talking about is, again, identity. Is there identity that our homeland is actually our motherland? Do they refer to people who are not Muslim as Americans? Do their parents refer to things that might be outside the realm of conservative Islam, like dating or drinking? or staying out late, or going to parties, or dressing in a provocative way, or even in a semi-conservative way, do they refer to that as what Americans do versus what we Muslims do? That creates a ghettoization of consciousness. Do they refer to the mention of Muslims and Islam in a negative way as that's what Americans think about Islam? Or Americans are anti-Islam. But we need to stand up for our faith against the American anti-Islamic movements. Which causes the kids in the community to become more ghettoized. Do they see Islam not as a diverse ideology, but as a unifying, not only faith, but collectivized mindset? That is the ghettoization of consciousness. And that is a suffocating, suffocating idea that prevents our youth, our teens, our young 20 to 30-year-old adults from becoming future leaders as individuals who rise above the specific identities of faith and go into finding their own success whatever that might be, through critical thinking, through science, through humanities, through products that they produce where they truly can live the American dream. If their families put together their future for them and give them a sense of an Islamic dream and never even use the example of an American dream, I think that's problematic. It's ghettoized. 
and it's suffocating. How many Muslim youth have the strength to take on their parents and say, you know, I feel more comfort in a diverse group of friends. I won't compromise my values. I believe in what those values of conservatism, of family values, of modesty, honesty, whatever those things may be that are considered to be Muslim values as they are Jewish or Christian, it doesn't mean you have to compromise that to have friends who make different choices. But if your families don't consider those to be choices, but consider those who make different choices to be evil and un-Islamic, or call them Americans in a pejorative way, that creates ghettoization. So when we talk about American identity, many in the, I can tell you from personal experience from the Arabic or Arab Muslim community, will not always use, as kids are growing up at the age of 6, 10, 15, American as a proud, strong adjective to defend a country that provides them rights, gives them freedom, and in a very positive way. But often the only time the child will hear the word American is in reference to moral indiscretion, in reference to alcohol, in reference to sexual provocativeness on television, with friends, with dating, things that are considered to be un-Islamic. And by the way, they forget that other conservative strains in in Christianity, Judaism, and all others would agree with uh, this conflict between pop culture and conservative faith values. But no, the Muslim community, often the Salafists or the more conservatives, will see that purely as an Islamic struggle against, not against those who don't share values, but against Americanism. And then you wonder why the kids are either completely un-Islamic or non-practicing, or they call them secular, or they become extreme and radicalized, or Salafized, as in Salafi or fundamentalist. So, think about that. In future podcasts, I'm going to, I think, dig deeper into this as the father of three, as a somebody who feels that, uh, as a physician, I see some of the psychological stresses that communities go through. And the overlays are are extraordinarily important. When we look at programming to try to improve the independence, the courage, the confidence, the leadership skills of our future generation against the clerics and the Islamists, you're not going to even begin that process until they're de-ghettoized and feel that American is an adjective, is an identity that they embrace as a positive, unrelated to some of the pejoratives that their families may have instilled in them. And again, I think a lot of that comes from families that, if your family's here for political reasons, as refugees from dictatorships, American is usually something that's positive. If your family's here because they got kicked out or it came for economic reasons only and always looked down upon America, that's going to continue here.
and there's a lot more layers to this, but it's an extremely important concept when you look at the obstacles to reform. So, it's another week on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser, your faithful patriotic correspondent. It's great to be with you, and I will catch you next week. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.